Before I uh, preach this morning, I want to make an announcement coming from our CBC board that's important. Um, So we're going to be in Acts chapter 8, so you can be turning there. But let me just read this to you. Um, About two years ago, actually two years ago this month, I stepped out of my position as family pastor here at CBC to become the lead pastor here at CBC. I'm kind of shocked actually how fast two years has gone by. It's, it's shocking to me. But in a move to fill that vacancy that was vacated when I left um, the board, I uh, would like to announce its desire to bring on Phil Rankin as a full-time family pastor at CBC, effective in early 2020. Prior to bringing him on, now Phil is not here this morning. He told me he couldn't be here. Sue is. So I would normally have him stand up. Most of you know Phil, but some of you maybe do not. But he unfortunately could not be here today, but he is a good man. But prior to bringing him on, we would like to provide a time of congregational feedback. We want to hear from you for 30 or so days between now and next 2020. Uh, This can be done via email, letter, or face-to-face with one of us as board members. Um, We would welcome that and we really desire that. We want to hear back from you. We want, I think it's important to point out too, this is not in lieu of hiring a youth pastor. Instead of, this is filling the vacancy of family pastor first, then down the road looking to possibly hire for the youth position. So I just wanted to be clear on that. I am excited about this prospect. Phil is qualified in both his educational training and his ministry experience. He has a lot of both. During his time with us, which has been about five or more years that Phil and Sue have been with us, we have benefited greatly from his teaching, preaching, and more recently his help overseeing our youth ministry and working with our volunteer youth staff. We cover your prayers as we seek the Lord's leading in this matter. So just wanted to announce that today and again encourage congregational feedback on that um, to all of you. So staying on mission. Boy, we need that, don't we? It's easy to get off mission. That's going to be kind of our focus a little bit today. You know, we've been following the story of the church in Acts and we've been seeing how Satan, whenever God wants to do something great, Satan's going to be there trying to oppose it. And so we've seen the schemes that Satan has attempted to destroy the work of God in his church. He started out with discouragement. The Sanhedrin calling the apostles before them and telling them, you need to stop telling people about Jesus. We're going to order you. And they they flogged them. They put them in prison. But it backfired. In fact, the apostles became more courageous and more bold after they were threatened and told not to do that. So that didn't work. That was chapter four of Acts. Then Satan says, okay, I'm gonna change tactics. I'm gonna try to work within the church. And so he tried the scheme of deceit and deception. That is often one of his favorites. And so Ananias and Sapphira in Acts chapter five, lying to the Holy Spirit. And we saw how God dealt with dishonesty and how God dealt with hypocrisy in his church. It's not acceptable. And so that didn't work. God stepped up and said no. Then in chapter six, we have the division. Satan tried to drive a wedge in between the Hellenists, 
which were Greek-speaking Jews and the Hebraic or the native-speaking Jews, and this whole issue of caring for their widows. And there was this argument and complaint that arose that the Hellenistic widows were being overlooked and there was favoritism being shown to the Hebraic or the, the native-born Jewish widows. And so Satan says, I'm gonna try to drive a wedge into the church and divide it. So there's two groups here rather than one. And we see the apostles stepping forward in wisdom and faith and appointing seven men to oversee the care of the widows. And so division did not work in the church early on. And distraction, this idea that maybe if he can get the apostles so focused on the problem of this oversight and the care for the widows, that they would be distracted from what they were really called to do, which is preaching the word of God and prayer. And so the apostles saw through that and they said, we're gonna appoint seven men to take care of that and we're gonna do what God has called us to do, which is preaching his word and leading this congregation in prayer and focusing on God. So all those things did not work. Well, chapter seven, another D word, it's death. Stephen steps up and he proclaims Jesus Christ in front of the Sanhedrin and it costs his life and they take his life and I preached on that last Sunday. So what's gonna happen now? This is getting more serious. And it seems, isn't it kind of sad that what a waste. This great man who was full of the Holy Spirit and God's wisdom, a very promising career is cut short by death. What's going on, God, why? And I came across this story and I thought it fit beautifully that God can use death for his ministry and his mission. On Sunday, January 8th, 1956, on the shore of a lonely river deep in the Ecuadorian jungle, five missionaries were murdered by primitive Aka Indians. News of the massacre shocked the world. To some, their deaths seemed like a, a senseless tragedy. Many decried the promising missionary careers cut short, the five young wives bereft of their husbands, the children left fatherless. Very sad and unfortunate event. Elizabeth Elliot, widow of, of one of the martyrs, Jim Elliot, commented this. She said, to the world at large, this was a sad waste of five young lives. But God has his plan and purpose in all things. There were those whose lives were changed by what happened on Palm Beach. In Brazil, a group of Indians at a mission station deep in Mateo Grasso, upon hearing the news, dropped to their knees, cried out to God for forgiveness for their own lack of concern for fellow Indians who did not know of Jesus Christ. From Rome, an American official wrote to one of the widows, I knew your husband. He was to me the ideal of what a Christian should be. An Air Force major stationed in England with many hours of jet flying immediately began making plans to join the Missionary Aviation Fellowship. A missionary in Africa wrote, our work will never be the same. We knew two of the men. Their lives have left their mark on ours. Off the coast of Italy, an American naval officer was involved in an accident at sea. As he floated alone on a raft, he recalled Jim Elliott's words, which he had read in a news report, in quotes, when it comes time to die, make sure that all you have to do is die. He prayed that he might be saved, knowing that he had more to do than just die. 
He was not ready. God answered his prayer and he was rescued. In Des Moines, Iowa, an 18-year-old boy prayed for a week in his room then announced to his parents, I'm turning my life over completely to the Lord. I want to try to take the place of one of those five. Nothing is wasted in God's schemes, in God's plans, in God's purposes, including death. Death is not going to deter his church. I will continue to build my church, Jesus says, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And that includes death. So at first glance, we might think, well, it seems a little pointless that Stephen is murdered. He becomes the first martyr. But God's in this. And really what we're going to see today is that God's going to use his death to keep the church on its mission. So what am I talking about, keeping the church on its mission? Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. They were in Jerusalem. They were doing God's purpose there, and they were on mission there, but God had more. And so God is going to use the death of Stephen to get his people out of Jerusalem into Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And we're going to see that now in these chapters, including today and moving forward in the book of Acts. You know, sometimes Christians, we are forced to do what we're reluctant to do. They were reluctant to leave Jerusalem. That's, where they, that's what they knew. That was their home. They, they were comfortable there. And sometimes I think God forces us, gets us out of our comfort zone a little bit, gets us out of our little boxes in order to do things that he's asked us to do. If you think about in your own lives how often God has brought about things in your life that you did not plan, that you were not comfortable with, but as a result, there were doors that were opened to do things that God called you to do. You know, there was a book written many years ago called Out of the Salt Shaker, and the idea was about evangelism. And sometimes it's easier to stay in the salt shaker. But we are the salt of the world. We're to get out of our comfort zones and do things that God's asked us to do. And so that's what's going on here in the book of Acts. We're gonna see that today in the life of Philip. That's gonna be talked about a little bit later. There's gonna be persecution now, the church as a whole. Before it was just the leaders, the apostles. They were brought before the Sanhedrin. Now the persecution is all, it's everybody. Then there's gonna be scattering, then there's gonna be proclamation of the gospel. That's what we're gonna see. So chapter eight, let's read the first four verses. We're gonna see four characteristics of their mission. Now that they're back on mission, there's gonna be four characteristics that we're gonna see, verses one through four. Saul approved of their killing him, picking up where we left last week, referring to Stephen. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church in Jerusalem, and all, except the apostles, were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen, and they mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off both men and women and put them in prison. Things are getting real serious. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. The idea of organic mission, it says that all except the apostles were scattered. 
Why did the apostles stay in Jerusalem? Don't know. How's that for a good answer? God had a reason. I, it isn't stated here, probably to make sure that there was a core place for the church in Jerusalem, but it says the, all of the people except for them were scattered out into the areas around Jerusalem and into Samaria, the regions north. But it says they were scattered. There's two Greek words used for scattering. The first word, Greek word used for scattering, has the idea of making something disappear. It'd be like scattering somebody's ashes out over the sea, like is done sometimes. And it's just they're scattered and gone and just kind of disappear. That's not the word that's used here. The word that's used here has the idea of scattering like you're scattering seeds. A sower went out to sow seeds. And it has that idea in it of they're scattered for the purpose of sharing the gospel as they go out. It says they went wherever, they just shared, they told about the word, they preached wherever they went. And what I find here is this idea that it's organic in the sense of the leadership was not directing them. They were on their own. They were fleeing, they were being scattered, but yet they went about the business of spreading the gospel. They gossiped the gospel. How's that? It wasn't like they were formally preaching, but they were, the word there is evangel. It's from the same word that we get our word evangelism. They were sharing the gospel with people. And the word is used five times in this chapter. Wherever they went, it was a grassroots, organic movement. There wasn't the, the apostles standing over them saying, you go there, you go there, but they just did it naturally. Now, verse 14 does talk about there was some oversight that's going to come later in this chapter, and we'll see. Peter and John are going to show up a little bit later. So there was some oversight of this, but it first started just as a natural, organic movement. I think sometimes this is important for us to hear because I think we, f we hear that evangelism is the pastor's responsibility. Let the professionals do it, right? That's what Ken's paid for. Wrong. I want you to hear that. Or maybe evangelism is a program, okay? So I'm going to invite my friends here to church, and we're going to have a program built around evangelism. And that's fine, but that's not what it's about. It's about you, it's about God's people going out wherever you are, wherever God has scattered you, and telling others about Jesus. That's evangelism. That's God's purpose all along, is for you to live a life that glorifies Jesus Christ and to talk about it and share it with other people. And there's nothing wrong with inviting people here. I will talk about the gospel. I will present the gospel on a Sunday morning. And there is something wonderful about coming here to church because they get to meet all of you. That's beautiful. But really, it's about Monday through Saturday being out there, being scattered. It was an organic mission. It was an urban mission. Why do I say that? Look at verse five, and this is very short, and I'll just kind of highlight this briefly. It just says that Philip went down to a city in Samaria, a city in Samaria. So Philip, who's Philip? 
Well, we were introduced to him back in chapter six. He was one of the seven that was appointed to oversee the care of the widows. We know that there was something about Philip that the people in the church saw in him that said he needs to be a leader. So he was put in charge, but then the persecution broke out and the Holy Spirit caused Philip to go into Samaria, this region north of Jerusalem. Stephen was the first martyr of the church. Philip is gonna be the first cross-cultural missionary of the Christian church. Now it's a city, and you're gonna see as we move forward in Acts that virtually all of the ministry in Acts will be urban-focused. It's gonna take place in the cities wherever the gospel is going. Later with Paul, it's gonna be spread out into Asia and Europe, but this idea of urban. You know, somebody once said, reach a town and you'll reach a town. Reach a city and you'll reach towns, regions, and ultimately other nations. And there's some truth in that. This idea, especially in their culture, where cities were the places where ideas came from. Cities were the places that were kind of seen in a very much more positive light, probably, than we think of our cities. When I think of cities, personally, I have a little bit more of a negative connotation attached to it. I, I think crime. I think all the issues and things, negative issues associated with city, but in their day, that was where things happened. And I find it interesting, the word pagan is a Latin word that actually comes from, and I didn't know this until one of the commentaries brought this up, it's paganus, which is a Latin term which means villager, rustic, country. So there was kind of this idea that if you were really a follower of God, you were living in the city. If you were more of a pagan, you were rustic. You were out there in the villages. Out there, you were country people. So you can see kind of that in their culture, it was kind of this negative connotation. Now, I'm not putting down country people. I'm a rural type person myself. That's where I'm drawn to. That's my roots. But in their culture, cities played an important part. The disciples had started in Jerusalem, and now they're moving into a city in Samaria, most likely Shechem, which was the capital city of Samaria at that time. It was located at the base of Mount Gerizim, and it was the largest and most important city in Samaria. So they're moving urbanly. Not just a city, but a city in, maybe the bigger point is a city in Samaria. Now, obviously, after studying scripture, many of you know the story there. That was just seen as off limits to the Jewish mind. In John 4, verse 9, Jesus is speaking to the woman at the well and asks her for a drink. And to us, that would have made sense and it wouldn't have sounded weird, but in her time and in her ears, it sounded very strange. And she's, and in her mind, she's thinking, how can you ask me for a drink? It says in chapter four, verse nine. And then in parentheses in the NIV, it says, for Jews do not associate with Samaritans. And then I found at the bottom of the NIV, there was a footnote. And I had never seen this before, but here's what the footnote at the bottom of the NIV said. It said, um, do not use, this is 
in their culture. It says, do not use dishes that Samaritans have used. And I thought, wow, there were some pretty uh, strong feelings about the Samaritan-Jewish divide here. You don't even want to eat off the dishes that they had eaten off of. That's pretty strong, isn't it? You get a little indication of what was going on. So now, as they're moving out into Samaria, that was something. Now, there's a history there, and just real briefly, and you probably know, but where did this hatred come from? Didn't just happen, obviously hatred comes over time, and there was a history here of seven, eight hundred years or more going back to the Assyrian captivity. If you go back into the Old Testament, in the time of Solomon, the nation of Israel is divided into two kingdoms. There was northern kingdom of ten tribes, southern kingdom of two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. Jerusalem, they were the loyal ones. The, the Samaritans, the, ones, the northern kingdom up north, they set up their own place of worship, their own priesthood. They just kind of went immediately into idolatry. So God brought along the Assyrians to take them into captivity. And so they were taken into captivity and just scattered amongst the nations of the world. But the Assyrians took the wealthy and the middle class away and they left those that were poor, the, low, the lower income people. And they allowed foreigners to come into the land and repopulate the land and intermarry with the Jewish people that had been left behind. So that's where it started. They were kind of a mixed breed of Jewish people and Gentile people that resettled in the land during that time. So you have this idea they were hybrids in their race and religion. They accepted Old Testament scripture, but only part of it. They only believed the first five books, the Torah, were really God's word. They did not accept the other books in the Old Testament. They had their own priestly line. They had their own temple in Shechem. They had their own idea of what, who God is. So they were definitely hybrids. They were heretics. They believed differently. And then, as the people of God from the southern kingdom, they were taken into captivity in Babylon, but allowed to return back to their homeland. And if you read the books of Ezra and Nehemiah, those books of the return, you see the people that opposed them when they returned back to Jerusalem and wanted to rebuild were the Samaritan people. So here they are, 70 years of captivity, they get to return, they get to rebuild, and the Samaritans are there trying to oppose them and keep them from doing it. And so this hatred had built up over time and it, it had become a problem. And you read about it in the story of Jesus. He's very clear about that and he walked into that culture when he was here. So there's this idea that it's this urban ministry but it's, it's cross-cultural ministry. It's moving out of Jerusalem, Judea into this place called Samaria. It was also, and very importantly, it was an embodied mission. By that I simply mean it was lived out, it was fleshed out in their life. They didn't just talk about it, they did it. Look at verses five through eight. He says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria, he proclaimed the Messiah there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the signs he performed, they all paid close attention to what he said. For with shrieks, impure spirits came out of many, and many who were paralyzed or lame, they were healed. 
So there was great joy in that city. There was great joy. We see the word being proclaimed. They spoke the word. It says they proclaimed the Messiah there. It's interesting that the Samaritans, like the Jews, were looking for the Messiah. They had a Messiah, Tahib, Restorer, was their vision of who the Messiah was gonna be. Now, this idea of Messiah is referenced in John 4. And so in John 4, verse 25 and 26, this is Jesus and the woman at the well again. And look what she says. She says, the woman said, I know that Messiah, in her version, I know this idea. I know that Messiah called Christ, he's coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. We know of this person. We're looking forward to this person. We have that expectation, just like the Jewish people. A little bit different, same idea. But I love what Jesus says. I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus said, let me tell you something. Here's something you need to understand. It's not about looking forward to that Messiah. He's here. I am that Messiah. Now the disciples, now Philip, doing the same thing, proclaiming Christ the Messiah. Spurgeon has a great quote, and I put it up here on PowerPoint. I read this, and I just said, there it is. Preaching Christ, here's what he says. He says, beloved friends, I delight to preach to you all the doctrines which I find in God's word. Oh, those are good. But I desire always to preach the person of Christ above the doctrine. Ooh, yeah, let's preach the Messiah, let's preach Christ. The doctrine is but the chair. I love that, there it is. The doctrine is but the chair in which Christ sits as a prophet to instruct us. Doctrine is so critical, it's so important. God's truth is foundational. But let's not get caught up so much in the details of it we forget what it's all about. It's about Christ. It's the chair that he sits on, preaching to us about him. That's what the apostles were doing. They were speaking the truth of God, but they were going beyond that. And I think this is so important. It's one thing to proclaim proclamational truth, but it's another to live incarnational truth, meaning to live it out, to flesh it out. It's one thing to tell people the truth about God. It's a whole other thing to live it in front of them so they actually see it. Look what happens in verses six and seven. Philip, who is given this gift by the Holy Spirit to do miracles now, to testify to the fact that his message is true. But look what happens in verses six and seven. The crowds heard Philip, so they heard this message, which is good, so there was proclamation, but they saw the signs he performed. They all paid close attention to what he said, why? of what they saw because he reached down and helped them spiritually as well as physically he he cast out demons he cared for the those that were lame he did healing ministries so there's this love there's this care that's lived out before them and as a result they listened people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care is that true i think it is especially in our culture today You know, there's no example in the Old Testament scriptures of exercising demons. But when Christ came, it was one of the the things he started doing right off the bat. 
And then his disciples were given power to do the same. Jesus entrusted them with the power. And we see that playing out here in the book of Acts. Luke 11, verse 20, Jesus says this, If I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. What the people were seeing, and Jesus was telling them, is when you see this start to take place, this is the kingdom of God bursting on the scene here. This is God's plan. This is God's program showing up. And one of the signs of that is going to be these spirits are going to be cast out. People are going to be delivered from spiritual oppression. That's the kingdom of God. That's what was going on here. The kingdom of God is truly showing up. We also see racial reconciliation. Verse 8, there was great joy in the city. Samaritans experienced joy because the Christians were scattered. Not just the converts, not just those that came to know Christ, although they definitely experienced joy, but the whole city experienced joy. Something was happening here. Proverbs 11.10 is an interesting verse. It says... When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the righteous prosper, the city rejoices. When the wicked perish, there are shouts of joy. When the people of God are doing what God has called them to do and living out the gospel, there's cause for rejoicing. Now, there's going to be persecution too. But when we, as God's people, do what God has called us to do, we're going to benefit our culture. We're going to benefit the people around us. And I think that's important to point out. To touch, to associate with, and to love Samaritans was just simply unheard of. This was not done, but we see the gospel being introduced here. Now, it's interesting. The Samaritans were kind of that between step, okay? The gospel hasn't gone fully to the Gentiles yet. It's gone to the Samaritans. They were kind of a halfway step. They were partly Jewish, and they shared some common heritage with the Jewish people, but yet they weren't. They they were interracial. They were intermarried. They were kind of half-breeds. So the gospel is going to the Samaritans now. It's going to go to the Gentiles pretty soon here in the book of Acts. But this was a mid-step. But what's interesting about the Samaritans is they were hated by both people. They were hated by the Jews for certain reasons. They were also disliked by the Gentile people. So they really were kind of in no man's land, so to speak. But yet, here's the kingdom of God coming to them. We have an organic, natural, grassroots movement. We have a city, urban, cross-cultural movement. We have one that's being lived out by what they're doing, acts of kindness. You know, one of the acts of kindness we can do is reach out to our poor in our community. We just talked about that downstairs in our Advent Sunday school class, this idea of what can we do when we see people around us that are suffering? Well, we can reach out in kindness and compassion and show love. That's going to go a long ways in sharing the truth of God with them. But it's also a gospel mission. So starting in verse 9 through 25, we're going to see the gospel being shared and people's lives being changed and God's church growing. But we're also going to see a false gospel in this section. So let me read this. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. 
He boasted that he was someone great. And all the people, both high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, This man is rightly called the great power of God. They followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his sorcery. But when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles that he saw. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they're back in Jerusalem, but they're going to show up here in verse 14, they sent Peter and John to Samaria. When they arrived, they prayed for the new believers there that they might receive the Holy Spirit, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come on any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Uh Uh-oh, things are turning south here. And said, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter answered, may your money perish with you because you thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord in the hope that he may forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you have said may happen to me. Hmm. After they had further proclaimed the word of the Lord and testified about Jesus, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. The true gospel, and then there's going to be a counterfeit version of it. Let's look at this a little more closely here. Simon the sorcerer, in verse 9 and 11, it talks about the fact that he was a magician, sorcerer, And the idea here is he kind of preyed on the ignorance and the superstitions of the people in Samaria. And he made money doing this. He did these signs that really amazed people. And people thought he was pretty amazing. The things that are said there about him. That somehow they they equated him to being God, in a sense. This man is rightly called the great power of God. So he was loving life, things were good. People looked up to him. They were amazed at what he was doing. But they're going to see real power in the gospel. And it's going to change them. So verse 12 and 13 talks about the fact that they hear Simon doing what he's doing. And it's pretty amazing. But here comes Philip and he talks about this Messiah. And he shows the real power of God. And people see the gospel for what it really is. And their hearts and lives are changed and they're baptized, including Simon. So on the outside, everything looks good. We have a changed person. We have a baptized person. Now, baptism is not salvation. It's important to point that out. But when you read the book of Acts, nobody believes and is saved without being baptized. So it's an important connection between the two that the book of Acts establishes very strongly. It's not salvation, but it's associated with and an important part 
an act of obedience after one is saved. Now, what is baptism? It's number one, it's a public demonstration of the gospel. When we go down into the water, it's a sign of his death and burial. When we come up out, it's a sign of resurrection into new life and walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. So it's a visible public demonstration of the truth of the gospel. But it's also an identification with Jesus Christ. They're baptized into Jesus Christ. They're identified with Christ as a Christian. So there's this identification part, but there's also this community piece. They're being identified with the people of God. So it's not just them as an individual now. They are part of a larger community of believers. That's what baptism is all about. Matthew 28 in the Great Commission, it says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, identifying them with Christ. That's what it's talking about. And teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. So baptism is such an important piece. We have the arrival of John and Peter. So Jerusalem, they hear what's going on in Samaria, and they say, we better go check things out to make sure that what people are believing is really the gospel. And that's important here. They want to certify it. This is a board of accreditation, so to speak, coming from Jerusalem now to check up on what's going on. Now, why John and Peter? And I didn't really think much of this. I just thought, well, obviously, they're important disciples. Peter and John, they're, you know, when Jesus did important things, he called Peter, John, and James, right? Well, I found this interesting as I did some studying. They, they pointed out a couple things. First of all, with John, there's a passage in Luke 9 where Jesus is doing some evangelism in Samaria, and he's preaching the gospel to the Samaritan people, and he's encouraging his disciples to go out and spread the good news in Samaria. So they go out, they spread the good news, and they're not having the best of results. So look what it says in Luke 9. As the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. He sent messengers on ahead, went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. They were rejecting Jesus here. When the disciples James and John saw this, they asked, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Let's just take care of business right now, Jesus. Do you want us to, you know, Jesus, do you want us just to call down some fire and wipe them all out right now? Just be done with this whole mess. But Jesus turned and rebuked them. Then he and his disciples went to another village. It's interesting, John now shows up, and instead of calling down fire of God's judgment upon the Samaritan people, he's calling down the fire of God's Holy Spirit upon these Samaritan people. How God has worked in his life and in his heart to change his mind about what's really important, what's really going on in regards to the Samaritans. And then with Peter, we're gonna see Peter as leader of the church plays a decisive role in the advance of the gospel. At day of Pentecost in chapter two, it's Peter who stood up and addressed the crowd. Um, Here, he's gonna show up in Samaria with John. Later on, when the gospel goes to the Gentile people, it's gonna be Peter who's there with the advance of the gospel as it goes out from Jerusalem. Jesus, in Matthew 16, had said this to him. He says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
Now, this doesn't mean, by the way, that he is the pope and that there's this papal succession from Peter down. That's not saying that, but he is the one, he is the leader of the early church, and he is the one who will ceremonially show the growth of the church as it expands out from Jerusalem. So this is important. We see the keys of the kingdom here being played out. Now, verse 15 to 17 There's a delay in the receiving of the Holy Spirit. Why? Why? The people, they believed they were baptized, but yet it says it wasn't until Peter and John showed up later that they received the Holy Spirit. Why the delay in the receiving of the Holy Spirit? I think that's a good question to ask. So there's there's basically three views that have been put out there, and here they are. One, They were not truly saved under Philip's teaching, one view. When Peter and John came, they really trusted in Jesus and received the Holy Spirit. I don't see much credit for that one because I think Philip understood the gospel, he saw the evidence in people's lives and that's why they were baptized. I think there was enough evidence there to show that they had received the gospel. So I don't think it wasn't that they weren't saved yet, okay? Second view. They were saved, yet in a separate experience, they received the Holy Spirit. And this is a pattern for today. So you receive Christ, then somewhere later down the road you receive the Spirit and there's evidences of that in your life. It's a second act of grace. And that's held by some people in some denominations that it, you know, there's, it, it's a distinct act of God, that the Holy Spirit shows up and maybe there's something like speaking in tongues, things like that. Not true, and I wanna make sure that, let me read Acts 2.38 and then I'll give the third um, possibility of what's going on. Peter says to the people there at Pentecost, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Repent, be baptized, you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not two separate things, it's together. And that's the pattern throughout the book of Acts except for a couple of cases. And here's third view, and this is the one that I kind of hold to, and here's what it is. They were saved, yet God in a unique move withheld the Holy Spirit until Peter and John came and laid their hands on them. God's purpose in this was to ensure continuity between the church in Jerusalem and the new church now in Samaria, guarding against division and exclusion. It was a visible demonstration of God when Peter and John show up and lay their hands upon the people that this is official. This is an official stamp of approval from the church in Jerusalem now as it moves out into Samaria. And so there was this delay that God planned for the people to receive the Holy Spirit to show This is legit. This is part of God's plan. And so it was a very purposeful move on God's part to wait, to ensure that continuity so that there wouldn't be this division between the Samaritans and the Jewish believers. And I think that's what's going on. Now, in verse 18, things change. Everything looks great. People are being saved. They're being baptized, Simon included. But then his heart is exposed. And it talks about Simon, when he saw that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money and said, give me this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands 
may receive the Holy Spirit. Wow. I just put on your note taker, not for sale. I mean, it's clear, it's obvious that Simon's attempting to buy the very gift of God, grace. He's attempting to purchase it with money. Now, one of the commentators said he's acting in character as a magician. They often exchange secrets for money. There was this cultural thing with, amongst these magicians that they would often share secrets and, but for sale, for a price. And so he sees this trick that Peter and John do where the Holy Spirit now comes on the people and he's like, I like that trick. Let's exchange a little bit of cash here. Show me how to do that. And what we really see here is in his heart, he wants the ability, he doesn't want the spirit. He wants the trick and everything that comes with that, but he doesn't really care so much about the relationship with God and the gift of the Holy Spirit. So he puts it up for sale. The grace of God cannot be earned, it cannot be merited, it cannot be begged, it cannot be borrowed, it cannot be stolen. It is a free gift of God. You know, we are not perfect. He is. Our best is never enough. Now, I don't know if you noticed that. I bet you did, but I left. I was going to go over and unplug this garland at the beginning of the service because I think there's probably some of you that are out there looking at that garland and have been looking at that garland the whole time thinking, what is going on with that garland? But I think it's just an example of how, you know, we started out, and I'm sure when that thing was plugged in this morning, it was all lit. It looked great. And I'm sure the star at the top of the tree was straight. (laughs) Didn't look like that. So everything looked good. But how often in our lives, we want everything to look good, right? But the reality is, this is more like it. This is more really where we're at. And so, it's not for sale, Simon. Now, This is not a true conversion. I think it's important to point that out. Verses 21 to 24, there's things that we see in those verses that just show it was not. Peter says, you have no part or share in this ministry. You're not a part of us, Simon. You're not part of the the community of believers. Your heart is not right before God, he says. On the outside, it looks great. You've been baptized even. Your heart's not right before God, Peter says. There's no repentance. You need to ask God for repentance for your sins. That hasn't taken place yet, Simon. Maybe on the outside, but not really inside. Your heart is still full of bitterness and still captive to sin. That's not a believer. Our hearts, when we come to Christ, we're new creation in him. We are free from our sin. Doesn't mean we don't struggle with sin, but our identity is we are in Christ. We, are, we have that power over sin. Simon's still captive to sin. And then I love what Simon does. He doesn't ask God for repentance. He asks Peter to ask God for repentance. So he's not owning up to it, is he? He's saying, Peter, I want you to do it for me, please. And the only thing he's asking for is not for salvation, not that his heart would be right before God, but that he would escape God's wrath. Get me out of trouble, Peter. Ask for it for me. There's nothing in this picture that shows true conversion. There's nothing in this picture that shows a heart that's been changed by the Holy Spirit and a new creation in Christ. But everything is just on the outside. 
Just because someone is part of a church community and participates even in baptism, I want to point this out, does not necessarily mean that they're saved. And I think it's good to remember that. What happens on the outside is one thing, but what's important is what happens on the inside. Have we really trusted Christ for our salvation, or are we still trying to earn it on our own? It doesn't work. It never does. So it's not about outside stuff. It never was. It's about my heart and what's going on here. Salvation's more than just a ticket out of hell. That's all Simon wanted. In fact, Peter's response to him, to hell with your money. That's what he says. That's the revised standard version, but that's what he said. <laughs> your hell, it's, it's going to burn. It's going with you, Simon. It's, it's no good here. Forget about your money. Trust Christ. That's what you need to be doing. What happened to Simon Magnus? I wish there was good news. I wish there was history that said this. He repented. He changed. He became a follower of Jesus Christ. In fact, the history is very much the opposite direction. There's a lot of history stories about him. None of them are good. But we know that, in fact, he's referred to as the first heretic of the Christian church. So we know which direction he went. And it wasn't following Christ, for sure. In conclusion, God is still in the business of reaching out to Samaritans today. But not so that they can remain Samaritans in their hearts, but that they can be changed and follow Christ. God wants to reach out to anybody in any situation, but not so that they can just stay the way they are, but that they can be changed by the power of the Holy Spirit to be followers of Him. Is your faith a genuine faith or is it simply a desire to escape God's judgment? Is there real faith there? Is there real conversion? I think that's an important question to ask in your heart. Have I repented, truly repented of my sins? Think about that. Not just showing up at church, not just going through baptism, which is great by the way, but that doesn't save. It's a heart issue. Are we staying on mission? Are we looking for opportunities to speak about Christ wherever we are? Seven days a week out there in the community. Are we concerned about reaching out to our community or have we just turned our back on the people around us and said, forget about it? We as a church have a ministry and a mission by Christ himself to reach out and show love and compassion and show that light. You know, we saw the lighting of the peace candle. You know, people are looking for peace, aren't they, in our world, and there's none to be found right now, except in the Prince of Peace, except through Christ. Let's be proclaimers of peace, and let's be proclaimers of the Prince of Peace. Amen?